Good afternoon, everybody. This is Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And um, I guess we're, we're having to have a deep and continuous conversation about crime in our city again. It's part of a national dialogue. I mean, it is not at all unique to us right now, but of course we are concerned about what we are or are not doing about it here. I personally am very focused on the issue of education and jobs and opportunities for youth. If, if, if young people do not see their future, then they grab it out on the street to get that self-esteem and that sense of, of being connected to something that, they, that they're not getting either at home or in school. But there is a lot of issues in play. And one of the people who has been dealing with this and paying attention and has been trying to uh, improve aspects of the overall uh, situation is Press Kabakov. And he's a longtime friend. And, and um, I called him just because I had a, a, an inkling. I didn't really know, but I had an inkling he would be involved in this. Um, and of course, he just had an incredible uh, op-ed in the paper this week. And his focus in the op-ed is about um, incarceration and appropriate incarceration. But he's dealing with this from other aspects as well. Press, why don't you tell me what you feel are some of the most critical strategies that we have to be addressing in order to make some progress in this and not just keep talking. Every time I hear a soundbite on, on crime, people will say, someone's got to do something about it. Okay, well, okay, let's do the someones. And you're one of the someones. So tell me what you're thinking about. Well, well bear with me, Gene. I've been... Have your face a little bit so I can see your chin. There we go. Perfect. Okay. Bear, bear with me because I've been playing with this since 1994 yeah. uh, when we had 400 and 15 murders and my father and John Casbon and I uh, brought the pros from New York, Linda and Maples and created the police and justice foundation. Uh, and uh, which really brought to the city intelligent led policing, uh, identifying those hot spots in the neighborhoods uh, and using technology to uh, figure out where the crime was going, and it and it worked very well. Uh, about 2010, I read that we were the incarceration capital of the world, and decided that uh, I needed to get involved on the reform side and created the uh, Smart on Crime group that went to the Louisiana legislature in 217 and dealt for the most part with nonviolent crime. Incarceration was reduced at the state level from 42,000 to 27. So we made some progress on over-incarceration. Uh, and then, uh, uh, decided that uh, that that we needed to deal with violent crime as well because and that's the subject of my op-ed this week that we have 5,000 people uh, in prison that have been there 20 25 years we're paying for them they have life without parole more folks in the five surrounding states and so we're being very foolish uh, in uh, not allowing them to go to the Parliament Pardon Board, where the recidivism rate for people to get released at that is about 1%. And then more recently, uh, 
series of my uptown buddies uh, were concerned about reform and the spike in crime. So I got head over heels again. And what do we do about this recent spike in crime? And I've been working with Peter Sharp, a criminologist, making recommendations to the mayor and to the council. And I think you could break them down into several uh, strategic things that need to be accomplished. Uh, one, you got to recognize criminal justice is a system. It's courts, juvenile courts, DAs, police, public defenders, mental health. Uh, and it's not technologically interconnected. So one of our primary recommendations is to find a great guru in the tech world that can help us pull this system together and work as a team, particularly when you're undermanned. You better be functioning as, as a team. You're walking paper from the DA to the, to the to police department. Next, uh, for some reason, we, we eliminated uh, uh, the technological gains that the data analysts that we developed in the 90s. Uh, and we need to reintroduce, and I think this is happening uh, because it's the council has jumped in the game and, and uh, uh, the police chief is reacting to many of these recommendations, but you need to get the data folks in there and recognize that you have a police force of around a thousand. We obviously need to recruit but we're losing more folks than we're gaining. So you better organize that police force around a thousand, which means that you need to have it highly influenced by technological experts, data analysis. You need to have the police focused on, 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 on violent and serious crime rather than traffic accidents. You need to redirect your, 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 your manpower. You need to, uh, uh, and as I said earlier, tie your entire system together. Uh, and, and a, but in a larger sense, it's a larger issue than just policing. And I know you've worked on this issue yourself, Gene, with juvenile efforts through the creative industries. Uh, we always talk about, well, let's, let's solve the immediate problem and we'll address the longer term problems later, but we never address them. Right, right. Uh, uh, and so exactly. uh, one of the things I've discovered in my research from the best criminologists in the country is that it underappreciated, certainly underfunded, are organizations throughout cities that pay attention to interrupting crime and violence before it happens. Uh, and there are a number of organizations that are doing good work in that way. Tamara Jackson with Silence and Violence, uh, uh, Melissa Sawyer's uh, YEP group, Sonny Lee, who's working with the juvenile uh, team, Josh Cox, which is a public office, has violence interrupters. And so you need to pay very close attention to intervening in people's lives and obviously do the long-term things that I've been working on all my life, which is early childhood and other issues. But uh, I think that that's a, a quick laundry list of, of not just saying somebody better do something. This is what 
needs to be done. And obviously it has to be led by the, by the mayor and the council and the public outcry is forcing them to do so. So it's a terrible time we're having right now on violence, but it also is resulting in, in some movement at the, at, the, at, the, at the public level. So I'll continue to, to beat the drums. How can I help you? Well, I, 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 you know, you, you acknowledged uh, in your remarks that this has been a focus for me as well. And I take a particular um, angle and that is, I think that we have an unusually creative uh, workforce population and youth in the city of New Orleans. It's, I'm from New York <clears throat> and New York is thought of as a creative capital. But when I get here, I encounter that creativity at the street level, on every stoop in the city, on every block, uh, in the schools. And the program that we have been doing called Creative Futures tries to help creative youth understand their future in that field. And I think um, if we put more energy into developing that part of our economy, which also addresses the whole issue of how are we going to um, be a viable economic state as oil and gas decline? What are we replacing that with? And in my mind, it's the creative economy. And our youth that I have myself personally been in the classroom with and taught, and I'm astounded at the level of creativity. In one of my classes, I had two kids who were already out performing. This is high school students uh, uh, performing music, recording music. Um, we had uh, uh, people who were making uh, fil little films um, in their programs. We had um, people who were working designing sneakers. I mean, it was just phenomenal. And we are not really paying attention to that. And I'll tell you, I have a, a, a little theory, and it goes back to my artist husband, who always talks about what a terrible student he was, because he wasn't interested in the usual classwork. He was a creative, he was an artist. And he would have been out on the streets if he didn't have a family that kind of corralled him and had a better opportunity. But I do believe that if we develop the creative abilities of our youth in, in school and pointed them in the right direction and they understood their potential, that that would be really important. They've got to know they have a future. If a youth doesn't know they have a future, that's when they look to the streets for an alternative. And, and out they go. So that, that's, to me, it is really all about- Let me build on that, Gene. I think yes. you're, you're, you're right on. Uh, I don't know if people realize this, but, but the, the lack of attendance COVID related at these high schools, there are th thousands of kids that are not showing up to school, young kids, 12, 13, 14, a lot of your carjackings are influenced by older kids that, and older adults that influencing these younger kids that have nothing to do and, and they're on the street. And so the point I'm making is that we have a system here. Schools have to play a role in this. And you have what you call evening centers. I know the Pat Watson's done one up, uptown and now doing in New Orleans where they give these kids something to do after school and give them the truancy that we have maybe even during schools until they start to return. And if you could have those centers in every district 
particularly the high crime districts. There are four or five of those in the city. And then add what you're talking about so that you can, when you have these kids, you can provide them the creative training that they, they as you point out, so many kids are not traditionally bound in the, you know, in the, in the normal curriculum will be turned on by the creative industry. And in a city like New Orleans, which relies on tourism and creativity, uh, that, that's a good solution to create talent in the city to take those jobs. And so uh, what I'm really suggesting is people like you and others, we need to pull together. I'm working with the United Way, for instance. The United Way has the capacity uh, they're not really providers, but they pull the many providers together and say, how do, can, how do we work as a system rather than in silos? And so I think what you're bringing to the table needs to be at that table in that discussion. Uh, and so uh, it's really all hands on deck. <laughs> you know, uh, Press, uh, one of the interesting things that happened during the pandemic is that um, for the first time in my experience in New Orleans, I've been here since uh, before a lot of people we work with were born. I've been here since, you know, early seventies. And this, this during the pandemic, uh, starting in 20 and 21, for the first time I witnessed arts groups working together, coming together. There's a group called Creative Response Network. Their purpose was essentially to try to get money uh, to arts organizations and arts providers at a time when their income was gone because of the death of the hospitality industry, uh, not the death, but the, the, uh, uh, the, the hit uh, of the, uh, on the uh, hospitality industry. Um, collaboration is something we need desperately. I totally agree with you. I think that we are trying to collaborate on how we go forward and come out of the pandemic and still be working together. So um, I need to follow up with you and, and, and talk to you. About well, let me make one additional point. Please. This collaboration needs to happen now. I agree. If Biden is fortunate enough to get Build Back Better or some components of it, right. One that'll obviously get bipartisan support is the $5 billion he has for intervention and prevention of crime. And those jurisdictions, I mean, the efforts that you're doing are always underfunded. Uh, it's not that money is everything, but if you don't have any, it's hard to function. Right. And so uh, uh, one of the opportunities is to get together as a community and hopefully some of this legislation is passed we're at the table to get comprehensive funding for intervention and prevention holistically handled as you're describing. Well, you know, um, I, uh, about uh, just a few weeks ago, um, I brought some cultural leaders together with Troy Carter because Troy is in a position to help us with this and made exactly this, this point that we have to work together on this. I didn't put an emphasis on on crime at that moment, but I, I really was trying to um, uh, open up a dialogue where he could help us navigate how the money is is being uh, directed up there, so that we could um, try to get some infusion of of help into 
the, uh, not just the creative organizations, but organizations that are dealing with education in general. You know, uh, let me ask you, Press, I know you're not uh, somebody who's involved uh, particularly with, um, uh, with Mardi Gras and the crews, but what about the crews? Shouldn't we be looking to them also to work collaboratively and help us with this? I mean, you've got these existing organizations of all kinds of people. When Sometimes when people think of crews, they think of just the old Uptown crews, but it's not. They're all over the city, um, Mardi Gras organizations. Has there been any thought to trying to pull them into this? Well, what's the old theory? Don't, don't waste a crisis. The, yeah. the, uh, uh, your, your crime is your crisis right now. And so how can you make the steps that actually address crime that uh, are, are largely overlooked during uh, less exciting periods? And so uh, I was on the phone this morning with Tamara Jackson with Silence and Violence in the tourist industry talking about providing housing for victims and uh, uh, witnesses that need, that, that need uh, immediate uh, protection. Uh, and I guess the point I'm making is that it's all hands on board. So to the extent that uh, the Mardi Gras crews have organizations that like to do good work, uh, they should be at the table. Yeah, and particularly, I mean, Rex is one of the organizations that has always, and Zulu for that matter, uh, been focused on um, uh, social uh, issues and assistance. So pulling them in, but I think that what you're what you're saying and what I'm saying, we're both saying is that we've got to pull together and 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 work on this. And I I do think that your focus on the nonprofits and what we're trying to do and our lack of support, that's also something that we've been dealing with just in the question of trying to build the creative economy in general. So I appreciate your focus on that. Um, I hope that um, we can look forward to uh, you know being as you said at the table. Um, the creative organizations, to my knowledge, have not been pulled into this yet, um, but we, we are um, talking about how to go forward. And I think that you said something that I wrote in my notes, and that is the, um, uh, the uh, in, um, in, in intervention and prevention focus of some of the efforts coming out of the Biden administration. I think that sounds like an important target for us in the creative sector. Would you agree? Sure. Who's the right person to talk to about that? Well, I'm talking to the United Way that's, uh, that its job is to force collaboration, collaboration across silos. And uh, if that materializes, you might chat with Mike Wilkinson, tell him that we had this interview. Uh, he runs it uh, and, and say that- You don't mean the uh, real estate guy. You're talking about somebody no, else. No, no, no. You, the, the, the executive director of the United Way of Southeast okay. Louisiana, Mike, right. Michael uh, Williamson, uh, and, and suggests that if he pulls the coll a collaborative effort, that the creative folks be part of that. I'd, I'd mentioned that uh, uh, developing centers across the city for these juveniles, Pat Watson would be someone to talk to, has, has a center. In, in the East End and, and in, uh, off, off of Washington Avenue uh, in New Orleans, that the creative, uh, what you bring to the table ought to be part of the curriculum or part of the discussion for these kids. So that's a couple of suggestions. I, um, I, I like that we've been very specific in this conversation and I look forward to continuing it. Um, I um, appreciate you giving me some time. I'm going to stop um, our interview, but uh, stay with me for just a minute. I want to just uh, follow up Gene. with a question for you. 
Um, and uh, also, I just wonder what's going on with um, this a total little sidebar, but um, the, the veterans who are coming back that are um, having their own challenges, um, are, are they uh, people who could be sourced uh, to bolster our, our police force? Is that something anybody's working on? Well, I would contact Mel Melanie Talia with the Police and Justice Foundation, whose job with the mayor is to recruit. And I do know that that's one of the audiences they go after is, is retired military. Uh, uh, they have the experience. Uh, uh, so I, I would say yes, but I would call Melanie if you want to get deeper into that discussion. Okay, and Melanie, what's her full name? Talia, T-A-L-L-I-A. Always a productive conversation when I talk with you, and I appreciate it very much. Even though You're we welcome. lost Chin most of the time during the interview. Well, tell tell Bob I had ADT too, and I didn't pay any attention in high school. So, <laughs> okay. maybe not paying attention in high school sometimes helps, but I think in New Orleans it has resulted on too many kids seeking their lives on the streets, and and that's what I. Their husband never did homework. But uh, my, my husband, who has been listening to the interview, reminded me that he never did homework. How we got away with that, I have no idea. But I could have He's smart. Okay. Bye-bye. So, thank you, Press. Take You're care. Welcome. All right. Um, I have been uh, enormously impressed <clears throat> with the efforts of um, Ethan Elstad and his uh, MACNO organization um, that has... Um, taken on uh, a very specific task in part with broader reach potential of making sure that um, uh, mu musical artists and other cultural artists are able to perform outdoors on our streets in our city, which is um, one of the most important traditions that we have is that um, music, live music played by live musicians from the city um, can play on our streets and, and in our parks and um, all over. Uh, and there has been a lot of controversy over this uh, because of concerns on the part of both businesses and residents. And, um, and El <laughs> you have been um, really tackling those challenges uh, from the beginning and trying to figure out how to work out a solution. So, First of all, just give me a quick intro about MACNO so people know uh, basically uh, what your organization is all about. Sure, Gene. Thank you for having me on again. Um, so MACNO Music and Culture Coalition of New Orleans, we work at the intersection of culture, public policy, and social justice. And so a lot of the work that we do often is what I always talk about as sort of the behind the scenes aspect of how culture can and does happen, which are things that are not always as apparent with um, with cultural activities, so things like the zoning ordinance and the noise ordinance, certainly, um, First Amendment rights, um, as well as the issues that affect people's day-to-day -day lives, like affordable housing and criminal justice and criminal justice reform. How do we make sure that all those work, um, you know, as, as best we can to support the culture and, and more importantly, the people that create the culture? Uh, because without all those things working in harmony, we know that um, they may not be you know, a space in the city for, for folks that are historically been the people that create the culture. So we want to make sure that, that in fact, those spaces remain. 
So um, initially, when you first tackled this way back, tell me about what was going on and why you took this mission on of dealing with um, uh, live music outside. Sure, and, and there's two. There's sort of two aspects of outdoor music. One, there is the traditional, you know, the second lines, which are which are a separate issue, right? And um, which are not covered in what we're going to talk about. I just want to put that out there because um, it's easy to see outdoor music and think it's everything, but the traditional activities are, are a separate piece of it that are governed in a different way. Um, and then there's, you know, busking street performers, which are largely covered in the First Amendment. But then there is live music at businesses and in parks and things, which is really what we're talking about, which are creating these spaces um, to have a more traditional live performance, right? More like you would be in a, you know, in a in a venue or something and, and see those um, more of a musical act than just someone setting up on the corner and playing a, a saxophone, for example. Um, and what happened before the pandemic is that there was um, a determination by the Department of Safety and Permits that basically, um, to make a long story short, said that no business in New Orleans could have music outside without first purchasing a special event permit, um, which basically made outdoor music at businesses illegal throughout the city. Um, and that happened in, in 2019. Um, and then because we hit the pandemic, um, outdoor music became uh, so much more of a vital piece of it, right? It was really the only way that people could, could go experience music, um, which was really important for residents to be able to get that little piece of, of normal of normal life. It was important for businesses to be able to just be able to be open and then important certainly for musicians to be able to have some sort of income stream. And so it had this heightened level of importance and certainly for public health. Um, and so, you know, the city to their credit created a, a temporary measure that allowed this outdoor music to happen in, in business spaces. The the catch and why we're having the issue now is that those that special COVID area provision is going to sunset very soon if it hasn't started to already. And so all these spaces that have been able to provide live music outdoors without action could ultimately go back to not being able to do it again without having to pay a, a fee every time they do it, which would be cost prohibitive for certainly smaller venues and neighborhood serving venues. And so what we're really working with is trying to create these, um, you know, reasonable regulations that allow businesses to have it in, in a way that also supports neighbors in the neighborhood because it really should be a win-win we know that live music is popular we know that uh, you know outdoor music is popular but also we know there are legitimate concerns that people can have so how do we get together and actually solve those so that we can have something that um, everybody can be happy with and enjoy right and um i think let's clarify because actually your your efforts with uh, uh, dealing with live music on the streets started well before the pandemic. Um, Correct. I, I, I don't remember exactly when, but it's it's been. It could it be as much as a decade? I mean, you know, when we when we first started, it's you know this is this is our tenth year. Um, when we first started, it was really focused on um, permits and in music venues themselves. When then we worked a lot with street performers um, as well because there are some specific issues around um, street performers and street performers. And then, um, you know, we really became aware of this specific issue regarding outdoor music um, in in somewhere somewhere early 2019, I think. Um, but we don't know when the issue started. That's just when we became aware of it that the city was not um, was not allowing it to happen. But it was not a 
it was not a written policy. It was just a policy that the Department of Safety and Permits had, had started. So, um, you know, part of our, our argument is also no matter what the policy is, it needs to be publicly available so people can, who are applying for it, who are starting a business, who are trying to have outdoor shows, know what it is. Um, and they just, we need to get out of this, um, you know, sort of, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of the, sort of a gray area, you know, of, of a policy that's not an announced policy, but, but someone has decided that it is the way that that's not the way that we can have a, a reasonable business environment. It's not fair to businesses, neighbors, or musicians. So we need to make sure it's in the public. So, so let's <clears throat> make sure the folks um, in, in the audience understand the current um, uh, timing uh, and schedule of what's going on. So um, uh, this show airs on Friday and um, a Thursday, the, the council uh, is taking up, um, uh, I, I guess what you might say is a kind of resumption of a process of considering um, how uh, this this uh, um, how we are going to regulate uh, live music going forward, and um, I hope I understand. And and um, I, I'll be honest about my concern about how this goes forward. That um, it 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 be done in an intentional and proactively positive way for musicians and venues, but um, also with consideration to the impact on residents in situations where a venue, um, whether it be a, a home, a business or a museum may uh, be re really intrusive on a resident's uh, life, uh, quality of life. So um, explain exactly what, why this week could be kind of um, uh, a landmark, a benchmark for um, this whole process and, and, and hopefully in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll try not to get too much into the weeds because these city processes can be a little convoluted and complex. So what's happening, um, you know, as today, um, so what will have happened yesterday when this airs is the city council is taking a vote on a motion that will start um, sort of the final public process to create the regulations for outdoor live entertainment, music and entertainment. Um, for some background, over the past uh, two years or so, the city had a commissioned a study that would create some regulations for outdoor live music and entertainment um, that went to the city planning commission. And there was some input from you know, from us, from musicians, from venue owners, from some residents, just to craft these regulations. But that has basically sat on the shelf for a year. What this motion does to, to today is it will take some of those regulations. Today being Thursday. Yes, today being Thursday. Um, yesterday, today, when this airs, um, we'll take those regulations, send them back to city planning commission to actually craft them into um, amendments to the zoning ordinance, which will then, once those are crafted, there'll be a, some public input on that. Then they'll get sent back to city council for more discussion and debate. And then once that discussion and debate is done, then there will be you know, theoretically and hopefully a final vote that will make those regulations into law. So it's probably somewhere between a two and four month process, I would guess more of a four month process than a two month process um, that has a, a couple of ways for public input. But what it'll do is it finally moves the ball forward. So we can have these, we can have this discussion and a public discussion um, and get to a resolution and make sure that we have real common sense, reasonable regulations that can allow businesses um, to have to have some outdoor music, 
moving forward. And certainly, you know, that small, maybe small businesses that just have a courtyard that might have a once a week, you know, jazz brunch. And then, you know, there are larger spaces like Zoni Mash and the Broadside that are more, more traditional live music venues. This would encompass sort of the, the spectrum of that um, so that we can, we can actually do it um, and do it right. So, so <clears throat> those are two kinds of venues. And of course, the venues that I think a lot of uh, residents are, uh, and maybe neighborhood organizations are most concerned about is, is places where um, homes have been um, uh, redeveloped as uh, venues, whether uh, in some cases I'm familiar with museums and others that are you know, dead in the middle of a residential neighborhood. And that's where I think the real rub and problem comes. Um, the thing that concerned me was that when this popped up um, sometime before the election um, and the city planning commission came out with uh, their initial take on what these regulations might look like, uh, it, quite honestly, it felt to me like deregulation totally. And uh, because there just there was no language that that I could discern that um, addressed the residential uh, neighborhood section issue. Um, also, I didn't know about any of deliberations that were going on until they had a meeting where they were taking the city planning commission was taking a vote on it, and it seemed like I, I felt and and I, it could be my fault. It could be that I just wasn't paying enough attention that there, I didn't sense that there was a really um, proactive um, effort to engage the community in the discussions for the planning. I was just looking at a plan for um, developing uh, uh, new uses for vacant schools in Detroit. And I was just astounded at the level of community engagement that was described in their report. And, and, and I, you tell me, was there just a whole lot of community interaction going on that I just didn't know was happening? Well, I think what happened with the study was, and I remember we were at a meeting, it was, I think the meeting was like March 12th, 2020 at the city council chambers. I remember being in that meeting and then three days later, everything shut down with a pandemic. And I think that is, is a big part of it um, because everyone was trying to figure out how to do public engagement in the first few months. And that's, I think the timing was very unfortunate and then everything changed with how, how spaces, um, you know, people are interacting with public space and outdoor space because of the pandemic. So there was some engagement and outreach and we reached out to the planning commission and did a little focus group. Um, but you know, that is, that is just a challenge of, of the way that the world unfortunately uh, unfolded over, over that time. But I think, you know, when the, the planning commission released the study you know, there's a couple points of comment, but then the unfortunate thing happened is then the whole process stopped for a year. So yeah. rather than moving forward, nothing to do with the election, I'm sure. <laughs> right, right. Rather than moving forward, um, a few council members decided really not to move forward with it, and it wasn't until the new council got seated that um, that there's been forward progress on it again. So I think I, I do think that was really unfortunate because it did actually stop public engagement, and now we're sort of having to restart that process, get people back aware of it. To do it and, and to get it done, um, I think the only the only possible silver lining in that is now we've had basically, you know, an eighteen month trial period of what what outdoor music can really look like, and so we've got a lot of space, you know, a lot of spaces and a lot of experience to see what what it works and what doesn't, and what we need to do, you know, what what the good actors have done and how we can replicate that. So you know, I'm hopeful that, that this is um, 
you know, this can be an easy, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a city engagement process. So easy is probably um, a little bit of a pipe dream. It can be a, um, you know, it can be a smooth, a smooth, productive process that will get us where we need to be, because I really do feel like this is the, this is the thing that's a potential to really be a, a positive for the city, positive for residents, positive for businesses. And I would also say this is part of disaster recovery. This is creating an income stream. If we have another, um, whether another strain of the pandemic that shuts things down again, and we have a, a thing, we have a set of policies and a system in place that we won't have to go through this whole process again. We can just do it. If there's another disaster that makes it impossible for a business to have inside open, they can still have something outside. There's there's a way that this can be folded into building a stronger economic safety net for businesses and for residents that I think we really need to explore as well. So um, I think that uh, you've been working very closely with um, the Creative Response Network, which is um, kind of a loose uh, affiliation of uh, arts organizations that came together during the pandemic to work more collaboratively to help um, artists of all disciplines during the pandemic. Um, and now there is a, an effort on the part of um, some of the folks who stayed active to um, really look at um, how that collaborative initiative, which you know I, I say every day of the week practically, um, was a, just a miraculous development because we, we had such um, terrible silos in the arts community before that. And that, that um, bringing together of, of folks for uh, over a crisis, which often happens in societies that crises yield um, in change that is positive. Um, so I, I'm wondering um, if there's a possibility that um, in, your, in your and others work with that group, uh, that, that they can uh, become in, engaged in this to some extent to promote and encourage the um, the uh, community uh, outreach that we need. I, I don't think we should put the whole burden of that on the city planning commission or the city for that matter. Um, it's really, if we care about this in, in the community, whether we're directly involved with musicians or other arts, because when you talk about uh, live performance, it, it doesn't just mean music, it can mean all kinds of cultural events that can happen uh, throughout the city. And I think there's a lot of talk about how important it is for us to spread it out around town because there's a little too much pressure on places like the French Quarter and, and the CBD even. So um, what about that? I mean, do you see uh, yourself and, and some of the other cultural organizations in town coming together to work on this? Yeah, I mean, I think the always the more voices at the table are better. Um, and I think as long as everyone is there to engage and be productive, then the the more people that are helping to make sure it works is, is exactly what's needed. Um, I think there's room at the table for everybody. Because again, as long as everybody wants to make sure that we're actually moving towards a resolution and not just trying to, to shut things down. And so, um, you know, again, if people, people need to feel comfortable with what the decision is and what the process is and what the regulations are. And the way people are comfortable is they they engage and they've or they've had the option not to but they've been invited to the table you can always you can always turn down an invitation but the invitation needs to be extended and i think um you know that's part of it and i think that's part of what uh, collectively as, as a cultural organizations we can all uh, work together to lift each other up and lift each other's uh initiatives processes organizations and art up I and mean, i think that's that is something that has, has come out and i think something that is 
um, pretty you know exciting to to see moving forward. I I I, I see you tapping your uh, watch. Does that mean that you're running out of time? It um, does, unfortunately. Okay. All right. Let me just uh, ask one last question. So. Um, I think New Orleans uh, misses the opportunity to be a model for challenges that we deal with that other places deal with, but that we are maybe confronted with in a, in a more um, intense uh, way, such as the latest stories in the paper today about, you know, more feet of um, uh, water coming into our, our uh, community. I don't know if you saw that yet, but um, uh, the, we can be setting the model for how to deal with this, but to what extent have we looked at other cities and towns uh, where uh, this is uh, issue has come up, we're not the only ones, and um, and looked at other models for how uh, communities are dealing with this. H have you been able to put some time on that, or have others uh, done that? I think you know. I, don't, I guess at this point, I don't have a, a solid answer just because there's been so much going on um, with, with the pandemic and with the pandemic and with. You know disaster relief and disaster recovery and just making sure uh -huh. that however as an organization and however as a collective we can support uh people as much as possible and I, I think but i think as we move forward you know we need to be starting to think about these larger processes because it is you know recovery is ongoing and we need to really be rethinking how all of these systems work and how we can collectively work together because you know the, the culture and their culture community can't work if the city floods either right and so um, all these things are intertwined. And so the solutions have to come from all of us. I look forward to uh, the initiative uh, that I know you will put into this and your organization and the other organizations and um, hope to do whatever I can to uh, you know, bring the issues forward through the radio show and, and other things that uh, the organization I work with does. So Ethan, thank you so much for your time. I know you're, it's, you're, you're crushed, um, so uh, I'll, I'll free you, <laughs> but um, having appreciated, please keep us um, up to date. And from time to time, please free, feel free to come on again and, and update us and invite people to whatever sessions there are going to be that we wanna make sure that folks get to. Absolutely. Thank you, Gene, for having me. And I would invite people to, if, for the most uh, frequent updates, follow our, our social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at musicculture504. And then we are on uh, Facebook as Macno page, M-A-C-C-N-O page. So check us out there and you'll get updates as, as often as possible. Thanks again, Gene. Uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate right. you giving us some time. Sure. Take care. Bye-bye. In addition to looking at issues that have to do with the way the whole criminal justice system works, and everybody's really on that question and, and the various parts of it that are not linking up well and working together, um, there's the question of really why is, a, why is a youth out on the street in the first place? Um, how does that happen? And um, I really appreciated um, the reporter um, Hammer on uh, WWL uh, trying to reach out that he said, we're not hearing from the, the kids themselves. And that's something I'm going to keep working on because I, I, I did it once a long time ago uh, when I was at WDSU and I was really very clear that the lack of a positive experience in the education system was a very critical factor. And right now we have a new kind of economy out there. And um, I, I think there's a lot of kids who don't see their place in it. One of the economies that New Orleans youth 
can hope for if they understand it is the creative sector. We have such creative youth here. It's, I'm, I'm from New York and I, I don't remember anything like what we have here. So Elise Galina. Galina Goldman. Yeah, Galina is how you pronounce it. Okay. Um, is head of KidSmart. And KidSmart's one of the really um, sustained organizations working with youth in the arts. So I really wanted to hear from Elise on, 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 on the experiences that you've been having with the young people that you work with and, and how that all works. So, so first of all, give me just a really quick little description of how KidSmart works. And then let's talk about the, let's talk about the young people. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, KidSmart is been around in New Orleans working with kids since 1999, so we're over 20 years old. Um, and, you know, our founders, Allison Stewart and Campbell Hutchinson, were really um, excited to start this organization because they heard um, Bill Strickland talk, and he does a lot of work um, in Pittsburgh around the idea of, you know, creative youth development and, and creative career pathways, too. Um, so even though primarily we work with younger students, that's, that's definitely always been in the ethos of our organization. The way KidSmart works with public schools in New Orleans and with our youth is um, through our creative schools program. So we partner with 14 schools all over the city. Um, we embed a professional teaching artist in each of those schools, and they are in the classroom co-planning and co-teaching with the regular classroom teachers for the entire school year. And then in addition to that, every month, a team of teachers from each of those schools come together um, and do professional de development together to learn different tools and strategies to add to their toolbox to, you know, better engage their students in learning and learn how to integrate um, arts and creative practices into their, um, into their professional life. So, so this is more than just working with youth making art. This is really, um, in a sense, interpreting their educational experience through art. Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. okay that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, the way that our arts integration programming works is that in our classrooms, there's equal weight put on both the creative endeavors and the academic endeavors. Um, one of the things that I think, you know, that you alluded to um, earlier is this idea of, you know, why is that important? And, um, and you know, I'll point to um, the studio habits of mind. So research has been done when we look at um, what actual thinking happens in a classroom where kids are participating in the arts. It's not really just about developing that craft or that skill within the art form. There are all of these other really important developmental things that are happening and things that are such as, you know, being able to engage and persist, being able to make mistakes and, and, and change, being able to stretch and explore beyond what your original capacities might be, understanding the world. And, you know, what I think is um, something that really speaks is that idea of being able to express, right? We right now want our kids to be able to have creative opportunities for expression, multiple opportunities for expression. We need them to have places to go and those wraparound experiences, especially during the pandemic, you know, have been taken away. And, um, and so 
being able to think about what that means to be able to find those outlets for that kind of expression has been something that we've been really focusing on. So that's been um, in the classroom. Give, give me uh, uh, a little bit of an anecdotal uh, uh, expression of, of where you have actually seen or your teachers, mm -hmm. uh, your art teachers have seen a turnaround in a child that was really challenged by various circumstances, whether economic or yeah. family or um, their own learning experience where uh, making art literally um, had an effect? I mean, there are so many examples. One of the things I hear a lot from our teaching artists is that um, when they're in the classroom, that often they'll hear from their, from their collaborative teachers, oh, that child never usually speaks during class, or, you know, that child, you know, they probably won't participate. But then when you have this other modality brought into the classroom when you have the ability to engage in learning in a different way all of a sudden we see those kids really flourishing kids who are you know not very verbal in class start to find other ways to express i mean when we look at the way that we've been teaching kids for you know eons at this point we really are so focused on verbal and mathematical modalities and so being able to have ways of showing understanding through theater, through visual art, through music or dance is something that is a place where kids can succeed and they can succeed together. So, I mean, you know, I feel like we have a lot of, a lot of examples of being able to um, just reinvigorate that curiosity and engage kids back into, back into learning who, <laughs> who might have been disengaged before. And, and disengagement of, and, and, um, just not doing well in school was something that in a, in a focus group I did once with some young people from the Billy Boys some years ago has stuck with me my, my whole life since then. I mean, we're talking 40 years ago. And, and I, they, were, they were talking about basically not having a positive experience in school. Yeah. And, 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 and you couldn't help but see the correlation between that and their presence in Billy Boys home. Yeah. You know, they were just lost. They were just literally lost. And, and um, I think that art can reclaim, reclaim folks and bring them back. I used to teach art as a volunteer when I was in high school and junior high school even. And um, I, I had that same experience with, with young people and just seeing them get excited. Right. Well, I mean, I think that we, I think that we really need to be asking ourselves why would why does a student want to engage right what 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 is the thing that brings them to school every day what is the thing that keeps them excited and focused and a lot of that has to do with you know the variety of opportunities that that they're afforded and that able and and the ability to have choice in that right so you know as um as we know within our system uh, of education, we're highly focused on accountability and what gets lost in, in a lot of those conversations about accountability is student voice and student choice. And so one of the things that the arts are able to do in our schools and not just KidSmart, but there are so many amazing organizations working you know, creatively with youth in New Orleans is, is give them that variety and give them options of how to, how to be expressive. And I think that the other thing that 
you know, that we think about when we think about what that looks like just kind of in the broader world of, um, of social justice is, you know, when you want to oppress people, what do you do? You take away their opportunity to express themselves. Expression is the thing that allows that to happen. And so being able to have student expression in our classrooms is, is it's just really crucial, not just to the learning process, but to student engagement, student empowerment, and, um, and, and recognizing students as creators of culture. I um, also think something that's important that, that we've been trying to do, and we're totally underfunded to do, and I keep looking for the magic solution, but we um, have a, a course called Creative Futures, where we basically teach young people what their kinds of jobs and careers can be in creative fields and how they would have to prepare to get into the post-secondary education or training programs that would help guide them into that. And I think that's really important too, is because it's one thing to feel like you have kind of a proclivity for making creative work. And it's another thing to see the connection between that and how you might make a living. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I, that's a part two to the process that we need to pay more attention to. Absolutely. I mean, I think that there are so many different career pathways within the arts. And again, we work primarily with younger students, but even the idea of being able to have that modeled for them by having a professional teaching artist in their classroom who not only is a professional educator, but is also, you know, running a theater company or doing their own studio practice and has that background and experience to bring in. But right now we're actually working on developing um, some programming for our middle school and high school students that is really looking at, you know, taking, taking the amazing creatives that we have in this city and bringing them into a formalized education system that they can share those experiences talk about not only the skills of making art, but how do you monetize that, right? How do you make that happen later on? And um, and our board has been um, really curious about what that can look like. And so we've been developing some some thoughts around how do we how do we start that conversation before our kids are about to graduate from high school, you know, starting it early, starting it, by modeling with our younger students and then you know really being explicit about those opportunities as they move through middle school and high school so that so that that's not a mystery you know i think that i think that that idea of um the the business aspect and how do professional artists how did they get there is just something that has been kind of um opaque it hasn't been it hasn't been something that we've been really sharing very well and and part of the problem is that a lot of people don't know anything about it so parents don't uh, guidance counselors don't when we first started doing our program we were going to focus on guidance counselors we were kind of talked out of it by people who said well they're not really functioning the way you think they are and you should work directly with the the, the kids themselves um finally let me just ask you um uh is is your sense that uh, the sense that I have that there is a kind of high level of creativity, a statistically possibly higher level of creativity amongst our kids in New Orleans than in other places? And if so, what do you attribute that to? 
Oh, I, you know, I mean, maybe is it in the water, Gina? I don't, I, I don't know. I absolutely see that. And I, you know, and I'm also- In the water, we're in good shape because according to the paper today, we're going to have a lot more water over the next few years. <laughs> exactly. so that could be, I don't know, maybe there's, maybe there's a, a, a silver lining in, in um, the projections for how much water we're going to be getting. I mean, I mean, think about the legacy, you know, I think, I think about the legacy of, of, of New Orleans and the students, you know, many years ago, um, a colleague of mine who actually now is working at Kids Smart as our program manager, she was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and we did a program with them where we brought some of our students to um, do a, vir a, a virtual um, workshop with her when they were, um, inducting some new folks into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it was um, uh, when, let me look, uh, it was Fats Domino and, um, oh gosh, what is his name? The, um, who he worked with so much. Oh, I'm gonna, it's gonna- Dave Bartholomew. Yeah, and Dave Bartholomew. And so we were sitting there, I had students from, um, from one of our schools, we were sitting there in the webinar and she was, you know, saying, you know, who knows who Fats Domino is? And a lot of people knew who Fats Domino was. And she's like, who knows who Dave Bartholomew is? You know, not as, you know, I even had a minute trying to remember. And one of the kids raised his hand. He said, he's my grandfather. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so I and think who doesn't have, who in New Orleans doesn't have a cousin who is a musician? Right. right. I mean, all of us. Um, I think we have an opportunity, and I'm sure some of the folks in the audience are having a hard time kind of making the connect, scratching their head uh, in, in the connection between creative pursuit and, and, and a crime diminution. But to me, it is, uh, it is a direct relationship, and I know it is to you because I know you've had that experience. And I, I think it would really be important for you all to do more um, kind of collecting data and information on these cases where you see those turnarounds, because maybe we can help turn around our community and appreciate how important a commitment to our creative economy is. I'm sorry, that's my mantra, and I think it applies totally to crime. And if you want to solve crime in New Orleans, make sure our kids know they have a future, appreciate what they can do, and um, experience what making art is like because there's nothing there's just nothing more um i don't know what that word is for it's some kind of inner charisma that happens as a result of it so uh, um elise i'm not going to try again <laughs> um thank you so much for um coming with us today please keep us up to date and i'm serious if you have some examples of some um youth that you're dealing with that you that you come into uh, initially and, and, and they really are not having a happy life and they express themselves, as you said, um, and they come out of it. Um, we want to hear about it and put them on our show. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thanks so much for having me. We'll see you soon. Absolutely. Thank you. And um, good luck with the spring term. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully without another surge. 100%. Keep All safe. Right. Take care. Bye. And bye to you all in the audience. This is Gene Nathan for Cross Time Conversations. I almost forgot to sign off. See you next week. <laughs>